Kubrick's Universe, Episode 1, Mick Broderick, Real One. Our highly skilled team are focused on bringing you the optimal experience. So many answers we may never know. Too many questions get on with the show. Time for the chorus, only this verse. It's true to you. Open the podcast doors, Hal. It's Kubrick's Universe. The Stanley Kubrick Podcast. Where's my shorts? Where's the bathroom? Doc, should I get it? On the hotline. Dr. Strange Love. Or how I learned to stop worrying and love the bomb. A moving <laughs> picture. Hey everybody, and welcome to the first episode of Kubrick's Universe. At the boards is Mr. Extraordinary, our producer Stephen Rigg. I am your host and humble narrator, Jason Furlong. So for our first episode, we are very pleased to have as our first guest, Mr. Mick Broderick. Now, Mick is Associate Professor of Media Analysis in the School of Arts at Murdoch University in Perth, Australia. He's also Acting Director of the National Academy of Screen and Sound. Mick's first book was published in 1988, and it was entitled Nuclear Movies, a critical analysis and filmography of international feature-length films dealing with experimentation, aliens, terrorism, holocaust. He has also served as editor of three books, Hiroshima, Nagasaki, and The Nuclear Image in Japanese Film, Interrogating Trauma, Collective Suffering in Global Art and Media, and Trauma, Media, Art, New Perspectives. So today, we are very pleased to have him as our first interviewee, because Mick is going to be talking with us about his current book, titled Reconstructing Strange Love. Inside Stanley Kubrick's Nightmare Comedy, which Mick describes as a research monograph, if you will. That is, it's about the movie's genesis, development, and assumption of its final form. And this book really sets the record straight about much of the lore uh, and the legends that have grown up around the movie. Uh, the Sunday Times title for the review of Mick's book was Stanley Kubrick's plan to flee nuclear attack foiled by toilet phobia. Um, a very brief synopsis of Mick's book. In the beginning, we learn about uh, Kubrick's coming of age during the Cold War and his preoccupation with the likelihood of World War III. Uh, it covers the development of the script from getting the rights to Peter George's book through the many iterations and writers to the final controversy over Terry Southern's contributions versus everyone else's. Um, it discusses the various individuals who were possible role models and uh, being for the character of Dr. Strangelove and also uh, how that character was developed further by the writers and Peter Sellers himself. Uh, the book examines the battle between Dr. Strangelove and the very similar movie, Failsafe, uh, how accurately 
Kubrick's film presents the facts and the military's safeguards and whether or not the events depicted in Kubrick's film could actually happen. Uh, the book towards the end reconstructs many of the scenes which were in fact shot but left out of the final movie. And in the conclusion it discusses Kubrick's film and enduring legacy to this day. I guess my first question would be regarding how many of your books and articles do deal with the prospect of uh, nuclear holocaust and um, other forms of mass suffering. My question would be, how did you come to be interested in these kinds of topics? I, I guess I've, I've had an abiding interest in the representation of the nuclear era, uh, not only through film and television, but also increasingly through popular media culture and through material artefacts. So I've been amassing quite a collection of uh, Cold War artefactual material, mostly off eBay. Um, there's several thousand items now that um, occasionally are displayed in museum exhibitions around the world. But um, I guess what led me to think about the ubiquity of representations of the nuclear age was film and television. I grew up in Australia as a Cold War kid growing up in the 1960s. And Australia at that time was really awash with American and British programming because there wasn't a strong domestic um, industry producing uh, drama television. So we imported a lot of uh, espionage series, science fiction series, military programming. Um, so, uh, in, you know, AEC propaganda films in compilation style ended up being shown as like Saturday matinees along with The Man for Uncle Voids to the bottom of the sea, which, which just rehearsed all of these uh, narratives of a potential nuclear threat, um, whether it was a secret agent, you know, the men from Uncle, uh, Danger Man. Um, it just seemed to me at some point in my late teens that um, somehow there was this underlying narrative that was projecting a future or a, or a kind of immediate um, future that may lead to nuclear disaster through terrorism, megalomania accident, alien invasion, or nuclear war. And um, it was when I was an undergraduate at uh, RMIT University doing a media degree that I wrote a large um, undergraduate thesis, about 30,000 words, on Kubrick cinema as an auteur. Um, so that was something that started me thinking about Dr. Strangelove in uh, a more concerted way. And, of course, that coincided with the resurgence of what was termed the neo-Cold War during the uh, Thatcher, Reagan, Gorbachev era. Mm -hmm. So there was this palpable threat, I guess, that potentially um, weapons could be used in a first-strike first scenario that may lead to global nuclear war. So that heightened sensibility and, and cultural um, reframing of Cold War cinema and television started me on the path that ended up being uh, Reconstructing Strange Life. So the genesis really goes back to my childhood, but the first serious um, scholarly work uh, stemmed out of that undergraduate thesis and then that book, The Filmography, in 1988. Um, do you mind if I ask, uh, uh, how old were you when you first saw Dr. Strange Love? I'm, I'm guessing I was in my mid-teens. Mid I think I, I took some days off school, either legitimately or illegitimately, and was watching television, watching television in the, you know, pretending to be sick probably. And um, <laughs> lo, lo and behold, um, Doctor Strange like pops up on television, 
And I remember my first screening, um, a, a kind of sense of ambivalence because I was, I was amazed and shocked and appalled, but mm. also delighted at um, the irreverence of the satire and that you could end a film with this reverie of a uh, uh, montage of nuclear explosions. So I was probably a little bit naive around the sexual um, double entendre, mm. but uh, of course subsequent viewings, particularly during my university years, <laughs> I, was, I was all the way with Kubrick at that point. Right. Uh, that's, uh, that's interesting. I have roughly the same uh, uh, story to tell in that I, I first discovered Strange Love. I believe it was the third Kubrick film I saw, and I was about 15, uh-huh. 16 as well. And uh, as you said, some of the uh, nuances were lost on me at first, but uh, I, I was rather drawn to it, and I was part of the uh, end of the uh, Cold War era, as I'm sure a lot of... Uh, uh, the younger folks in SCAS and, well, most of us in general, uh, did grow up with uh, some aspect of uh, the Cold War uh, affecting our lives. So, well, I'm, um, sure, I'm, I'm sure, if I can just interrupt, I think, um, uh, you know, I, I was totally unaware of Stanley Kubrick. Uh, I'd seen 2001 on first release as a child at the wow. age of eight or nine. Wow. Uh, we, I'm not sure it was Cinerama, but it was certainly a, a massive widescreen um, mm. exhibition in Melbourne. And probably in my early teens, I saw Spartacus again uh, at the local cinema um, in 70 mil. So um, I'd, I'd been exposed to Kubrick's cinema at, at the theatre, um, but I encountered Strange Love on television. But I didn't put two and two together until later, and uh, that got me on the road of um, following him as an auteur. You know, in relation to uh, previous books of yours, uh that had dealt, you know, you dealt with uh, atomic war from a, a more broad perspective. Was there something in particular that drew you to do an in-depth study and, and uh, write reconstructing, you know, to focus on a single movie mm. uh, based on your background in a broader perspective? I'd been thinking about this for a long time, um, and a parallel uh, development was I got a visiting fellowship to UCLA to look at the Stanley Kramer archive. So I spent a month there looking at his files on on the beach, and this was about 1999. Um, And around about the same time, I was uh, engaged with alt-movies Kubrick Mm -hmm. um, as the Usenet group while while working for the Australian Film Commission in Sydney. And when when, uh, Kubrick died... Uh, I waited a year or two and, and reached out to his daughter, Katharina, mm. who, who had since announced her, her presence on that group. Um, and I, I pitched the idea of this reconstruction um, work, looking at Kubrick's work uh, as a kind of historical archive. And um, at that time, the family were working on um, a life, you know, the Kubrick, Kubrick uh, biography that Jan Harlan directed. And they were just starting to think about what to do with his um, massive archive. But fortunately, they, they allowed me to come along. So getting back to that um, parallel development, originally I was going to do a book on, on the beach, which I'm still going to do, but um, the, the Kubrick archive far, far outweighed the uh, Stanley Kramer archive. So you know, I knew I had at least a decade's work ahead of me just because of the bulk of the material. Um, but also what, what made me turn to Strange Love was that having done this large big picture overview of 
you know, seven or eight decades of uh, nuclear films from around the world, it still stood out as a landmark. It really was a beacon. Um, mm. So there was something that was so powerful and had such a lure. As a sidebar, do you find there uh, have or, uh, you know, is <clears throat> anything obviously not exactly like Strange Love, but has there, uh, have there been other films uh, that deal with this topic struck you personally? Not necessarily global thermonuclear war, but um, I'm a big fan of Tarkovsky's Stalker. You know, the nuclear relevance there is the professor who takes in a small kiloton um, device to, to blow up whatever this entity is that exerts this force in the zone. Um, and there's that philosophical exchange um, between the writer, stalker and um, scientist as he's about to, you know, nuke, <laughs> nuke whatever this thing is. And, and they, they fight over this, um, this small device and um, eventually they throw it into the water. But what's interesting for me about that is um, that, that mirrors a very early British film, um, and again, this is probably jet lag happening here. Someone can probably um, chime in on this. I think it was Seven Days to Noon by, by um, the Bolting Brothers, where uh, a disaffected British um, atomic scientist develops an, a suitcase nuke, and he and he threatens uh, London uh, that it'll explode it unless there's universal disarmament. So he, here's this kind of um, screen representation of these small, portable, um, lightweight nuclear weapons into very different international contexts. And yet, all throughout the post-September 11, um, I would say hysteria about the idea of there being a suitcase nuke taking out New York, mm. uh, a la, you know, uh, the, the peace, um, uh, Peacemaker movie. Um, mm. the, you know, you can, you can find, when you've done these large surveys of films across time, you, you see um, themes repeating themselves, um, and it's interesting to chart how those tropes play out at a particular time in and in a particular place and match them against the uh, geopolitics of the time. Indeed, as I'm sure, you know, um, we all listening in can remember uh, that time. I, I want to go back just briefly. I believe you were talking about uh, On the Beach and uh, Stanley Kramer. I wondered if you had anything to add about that. Uh, well, well, maybe somewhere along the line in my you know, childhood psyche, the idea of being born in Melbourne when Hollywood came to town to make a film about the end of the world <laughs> might, have, might have somehow seeped into my subconscious. But um, Kramer's film is very interesting because it was originally based on um, Neville Shute's novel, which was serialised in the newspapers in North America before it became a best-selling book. And then it got adapted for radio, then Kramer made the film. It was subsequently made into a two-part TV series in the late 90s. It's also then been serialised again as a radio drama, and now I know someone's working on a libretto for an opera. So what I intend wow. doing with that is, is seeing, seeing how that, that story about you know, the gradual entropic end of humanity in this very kind of stoic way, um, why it plays out in these different you know, media forms um, at these different times. So I think there's a great deal that can be done in this new film history archaeology that seems to be emerging. You know, people like Peter Kramer has done great work with the Kubrick uh, archives and um, partly led that, that resurgence back towards looking at um, historical first primary materials rather than just, you know, textual um, aesthetic analysis. 
I guess to uh, get back a bit to the publishing, now there's a, 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 a chapter um, uh, on the Strange Love outtakes, which had originally appeared in the, this anthology called uh, uh, New Perspectives, which came out a few years ago. Mm-hmm. I'm a big fan of that book. I bought it, you know, the day it came out. How did that come about, and uh, did it help you find a publisher for uh, your work, Reconstructing Strange Love as a whole? Um, so in 2008, you know, I'd, I'd actually spent two weeks at uh, Chittigbury in the Kubrick house, um, yes. and that was before the archive shifted to the uh, College of the Arts. Mm-hmm. So I had a lot of encounters with the um, archivist there, in particular uh, Richard Daniels, and, and Richard advised me that he was going to get uh, a collection of works that visiting scholars had done um, to showcase the the materials um, and provide some new perspectives, literally new perspectives mm-hmm. on Stanley, Stanley Kubrick. Yes. So you know, I was very pleased to be asked to um, to do that, and I chose as a as a foci um, what what. I'd never really seen anyone in any scholarship anywhere look at the continuity reports, the daily continuity reports that um, uh, presented for the studio, along with, you know, the rushes to kind of show um, how many takes there were, what the camera angles were, who the DOP was, the date, the location, the cast, um, and, of course, the continuity scripts, or I should say uh, the continuity recordings of the um, individual takes. And... Once in a while, I'd seen a smattering of those um, works in bits of scholarship, but nothing that comprehensively looked at a range of material so that you could see not only the shooting ratio, but also why certain takes were selected. Um, and, and, you know, if you look at um, particularly the war room sequences, there's a, there's a few kind of clunky cuts, um, mm. particularly particularly early on, and... As I went through those continuity reports, I, I realised that uh, Kubrick was shooting around Sellers, particularly as he was doing this business in the early uh, scenes where he had a heavy cold. So he was honking into his handkerchief and <laughs> putting putting um, putting inhalers into his nostrils, and, you know, doing the business. You know, you can imagine how hilarious that must have been. Oh my when, yes. they, yeah. when they decided to um, play it straight. All of those earlier um, shots had to be cut back and worked around. Yes. So the continuity reports, you know, showed I, I could basically say what what camera um, angle, what um, scene on what day was matched with one, you know, several weeks later. Wow. Um, but also the surprising thing was all of the material that was excised. Um, and it was disappointing to me. I wrote a, a lengthier piece on the pie fight sequence, but um, mm. the the estate. Uh, and I, when I say the estate, I don't mean the Kubricks. I mean the controlling mm-hmm. legal administrative body um, decided that, in their wisdom, that no mention mm. of um, the pie fight should be made. Even even though it's like ah. trying to de- it's like trying to deny. You know, back on the September 11 um, trope, an event like this took place. So it's yeah, so, you're right, right, right. It's so well known. It's, it seems ca- ca- counterproductive to do that. But anyway, nothing that, to that see was... here. Move along. <laughs> so um, anyway, I did manage to get a little bit of that into the book. Um, but yes, yeah, so that that was really a 
an intervention, I guess, to kind of um, recuperate these these wonderful textual documents mm. that um, are absolutely smoking guns. You can see how many takes. You can see yes. what lines were changed. You can, for example, you know, um, Terry Southern's son, Niall, who I spent a bit of time with um, early on in this project, um, yeah, he was very curious to find out how much his dad had actually contributed in terms of, you know, the words that were used. And, you know, there are certain ad-libs that seem so Southern-like, but in actual fact you can see from the continuity reports that um, some of these things either Sellers made up or certainly um, mm -hmm. Sl Slim Pickens made up. Mm. Now, they didn't, all, they didn't all make the cut, but you can see how Kubrick... Uh, created an atmosphere on set that enabled people just to go off and, and riff and offer variations. And he, he, he just ate this stuff up. He loved it. So uh, there was a lot of coverage, but um, not a lot of uh, prints. Like, he, he knew exactly what he wanted. So he wasn't printing, you know, five of the seven takes. He's only printed mm -hmm. one or two. Mm -hmm. um, so and effectively, I could show empirically that... He was pretty much very close to standard Hollywood um, shooting ratios, for, at least for Strangelove. That's interesting. I mean, beyond interesting. Um, and, uh, you know, on behalf of a, lot of, of a lot of cinephiles, I'm sure I say, you know, find it awesome that uh, Stanley was open to interpretation, uh, given that there's long been a mythology surrounding his uh his approach to uh, filming that he was too didactic, et cetera. But from all accounts, he was just very uh, open to uh, mm. things happening on the spot as a, as a film fan. That's something I always loved learning about Stanley is that contrary to popular uh, belief, he was, you know, very open to uh, input from others, et cetera. Um, yeah, I mean, he he was certainly no Svengali. I mean, he he, he deliberately <laughs> inculcated an atmosphere that um, welcomed welcomed um, you know critical contributions. So you could you could be um, on set as a member of the of the crew, and if you had an idea, it may not be you that would have taken it to Kubrick, but uh, mm. someone would have got in his ear. And you know, I think this is the great the genius of Kubrick was that he had the intellect and the capacity to simultaneously contemplate and really critically think through any number of multitudinous scenarios. You know how noisy and busy, you know, film sets are, particularly mm -hmm. the industrial studio model. Um, mm -hmm. Imagine how much was going on in his head, yet he would take time to listen to ideas from people and if, if they tickled his fancy, he'd, he'd give it a crack. It, it, it does seem to be the mark of a, a very unique breed of leader that knows uh, that sometimes uh, to lead means to follow. Uh, and by that, I mean, you know, the uh, input of others and to, you know, go where the river takes you. And I think uh, Stanley was just absolutely in tune with that um, personally, based on everything I've read um, and, and what you're saying backs that up. Um, yeah, I think, I think, um, because of that openness and because of his willingness to experiment um, and receive uh, suggestions from multiple players, it also did put him in touch with the zeitgeist. You know, I mean, he would say that 
falling in, falling in love with an idea is the hardest thing. <laughs> you know, finding that script, finding that book, finding that yes. source, inspiration, yes. but also keeping that love affair going from um, development through to post-production through to distribution. Um, you know, it's, of course it's an obsessive thing, but um, he was also, I would assume, keenly aware that he did need um, various multiple inputs from others to, to keep it honest. So he never lost the singular vision of what he was doing, but he certainly understood that other people could have nuanced interpretations and things to offer during that love affair. That, that, that's fascinating. And yes, I mean, well, I mean, keeping that uh, love affair, you know, uh, flourishing from uh, the beginning on through is uh, the crux of the matter there. Not unlike uh, real life, if I uh, may add. <laughs> um, but anyway, to move along, I just uh, I got to ask um, uh, about Marvin Minsky uh, and the way you uh, uh, re- in, in your book, you related a story from yep. Minsky and of course uh, a friend of uh, Stanley's and uh, I have a quote in front of me of uh, his which said upon news of the superpowers agreeing to have H-A-L-V-E have their nuclear warheads Kubrick felt the announcement was really pathetic because it can't really make any difference as long as they have enough to destroy the world uh, he said I wish Stanley said, can't anybody get through to them to make them realize that they've got to do something much more effective than that? To continue quoting you, Minsky had observed that many years earlier, Kubrick had himself uh, (laughs) made a movie called Dr. Strangelove, which explained the point far more clearly than anybody could possibly do. So... uh, Strangelove was a, a massive success at the box office. It, it entered into uh, the popular culture's consciousness and, you know, subconsciousness, really, as, as the years went on. Um, in, in your opinion, from, from that time forward, and of course this was all, we know that the uh, original release date was tragically uh, un- unknowably timed with uh, what turned out to be uh, JFK's assassination. So there was that, you know, as you said, I mean, of course, the zeitgeist, there was that moment in history, and it's just the strange uh, uh, convergence of events, and, and, and Dr. Strangelove comes out. So given uh, Minsky's quote uh, and, and, and Stanley's, you know, uh, banging his head at this this madness, you know, I wonder if you think given the impact that strange love had at the time continued to have and still has to this day more so than ever perhaps um you know what you know would you regard the impact how meaningful the impact of the film on actually reducing the risk of nuclear war given that strange love is a a, a film known around the world Kubrick was very conscious of the fact that his his artistic endeavours um, didn't really have the power to change things necessarily. In fact, you know, it was more about reflecting the world and reflecting his own particular interests back to himself and to, you know, international audiences. So part of that reflection hopefully leads to contemplation and some, uh, particularly when you're dealing with the potential eco side um, mm. of, the, of the planet, um, 
that by contemplating these things, um, that you would be more sensitive, more perhaps attuned to political um, issues or other military kind of things, you know. So I, I don't think um, when, he, when he said to Minsky, you know, someone should do something, he, of course, had done something, mm, <laughs> as, Minsky right. pointed, <laughs> as, as, Minsky, as Minsky pointed out to him. I don't, I don't think that was a senior moment on, on Kubrick's part. I think he, he genuinely was <laughs> exacerbated by uh, um, that this, this continued to go on and that the threat wasn't being diminished. But I think we can take a, a leaf out of uh, Oliver Stone's playbook when he showed Dr. Strange love to Vladimir Putin recently. Um, Another fascinating the, during, topic, yes. During during the Putin interviews, yeah. yeah. And, and I have I have no doubt, um, you know, Putin saw, was very bemused watching this. Um, it probably confirmed his his idea of you know um, the extravagance uh, or the irrelevance of um, the American entertainment industry. Mm. But I don't think it would have any lasting impact on Putin. It clearly did on Stone, enough for him to, you know, take time to show it to Putin. So I think there are these secondary influences, but it's very hard to draw conclusions about primary um, causal relationships between any work of art. I was an 80s teen, and I grew up under Ronnie Reagan and... uh mm -hmm. Gorbachev and uh, good old Maggie, uh, and I wonder, uh, you know, if there was, you know, as as Strange Love entered into the popular culture, you know, and it's hard to think, but uh, in 1984, when you know Reagan was elected to his second term, you know, Strange Love had only been out for 20 years at that time. I say only 20 years, but as we all know, that goes by pretty quick now. So, do you have any recollection? I mean, I mean, it's just your your take on it and. I have a, a limited perspective as I was a young chap, but uh, we had a we had a film, uh, a made-for-TV movie called The Day After in the United States. It aired. It was a big, big event. Um, it happened uh, during one of Reagan's two, uh, two terms. And um, with regard to the potential for Strange Love to reduce the risk of nuclear war and have some kind of a meaningful impact... Uh, in popular culture, had you done any research uh, at all regarding uh, the '80s and the and the end of the the end, I say, <laughs> of the the Cold War uh, era as it was under Reagan? Yeah, uh, the, the '80s actually informed my PhD. I I did my PhD on uh, the Mad Max cycle of post-Holocaust films. Oh, love it. Um, and and that kind of coincided not only with with you know punk aesthetic and mm -hmm. uh, punk politics, but mm -hmm. The way that the Mad Max um, sub-genre of films that, that emerged, they just blossomed out of nowhere internationally because they could be made cheaply, I guess, mm -hmm. exploitation movies. But it certainly kind of tapped into something that was um, going on in the shared cultural collective consciousness, I guess, around the world. Predicated, and this is, I can't really underline this point enough, predicated on nuclear war being a fait accompli. These are not films about a nuclear war. These are films about a nuclear war happened, and it's happened long ago, right. and who and how do people survive? Um, you know, so as a, as a kind of ideological um, analysis, you can look at these films in ways that um, are quite disturbing in the sense that it's almost like politically there's no point even contesting the possibility of nuclear war happening. Mm -hmm. It's happened. 
Mm. You know, we're we're going to collectively imagine scenarios in which this is inevitable and um, who's going to survive and how are they going to survive. So that was one aspect of the 1980s. Um, the other one was that what emerged in the late 70s and early 80s was this horrifying prospect that um, the global thermonuclear war would lead to so much material and debris through firestorms and mm-hmm. particulate matter being pushed up into the upper atmosphere, mm-hmm. that this would circle the globe for, for decades, mm-hmm. causing long-term nuclear winter. So uh, I think a film like Threads or a TV uh, uh, program like Threads was the first to actually envisage some long-term consequences of um, a nuclear winter. Mm-hmm. And scientists are telling us now that only a very small amount of uh, a nuclear exchange, such as 100 weapons between, let's say, Pakistan and India, would lead to a global nuclear winter. So um, still these are things that aren't actually being presented. You know, this is the science. This is telling us what even a a limited exchange might lead to. So, but again, this kind of apocalyptic imagination was very strong in the 1980s and Mm -hmm. has continued, continued. As we got closer to the millennium, there are all kinds of disaster films being made. But, um, sorry, this is the PA system. So, um, yes, there hasn't been a a diminution of apocalyptic and post-apocalyptic scenarios. The whole, you know, zombie phenomena is another um, expression of that. I was going to get to that, yes. I wouldn't want to suggest that, um, you know, all of these are allegories of nuclear war or post-nuclear war, not at all. They have their own particular tropes and... Uh, narrative structures and the themes that get repeated. I mean, the apocalyptic is something that's, you know, dominant in in most societies. But, um, you know, we just happen to be living at a time where uh, Homo sapiens developed the capacity to literally bring about um, the end of the world as far as our species is concerned. Right. So, you know, for millennia, um, this was the domain of a deity or some kind of cosmic force. Not, not, and I mean this literally, man-made endeavour. Mm. So, um, and and this kind of came about in the latter half of the 20th century, in the lead up to, of course, the second millennium in Christian theology. You know, mm-hmm. the idea of an imminent, perhaps, return of uh, of a Christ who might bring mm-hmm. about um, uh, apocalypse. So, all of these things came about in the late 20th century, and um, I think much of the disaster and much of the apocalyptic uh, engagement is also a pushback against globalisation. Um, you know, there's so many things we could talk about, but um, all I wanted to say was I wouldn't try to conflate nuclear anxiety with the emergence and the resilience of um, zombie tropes in, in film and television. Yeah, understood. I, you know, as a, a general uh, uh movie buff i i did notice uh that at some point after the fall of the berlin wall there did seem to be this this rather false sense of peace which crept into at least american uh films and entertainment that it did sort of veer away from i mean we had films like you know big box office hits like hunt for red october mm-hmm. um which which dealt with the, the the peripheral uh issues of potential nuclear war but um as the uh 90s wore on there did seem to be uh, a tendency for hollywood to veer away from it and then of course you know after 9-11 happened uh things 
it did change and unfortunately ever since it's been all too much a part of our daily reality now leading up to our current situation yeah i read a piece precisely reflecting on that um change of sensibility called um is is this the sum of all fears again i did a kind of a quick a quick survey of about 500 film after my book was finished which was 1991 Mm -hmm. uh, 2004 so i was looking at uh, these that you're speaking about the way there was a a perceived um, reduction in threat. Um, but what happened during that period was that um, there was a nostalgia for, in particular, the kind of um, Kennedy Camelot era. So there are a number of films set in the early 60s that dealt with, uh, you know, the nuclear threat, mm-hmm. um, some as entertainment, some as um, a little bit more reflective on the, on the geopolitics. Um, but then again, as you said, after 9-11, suddenly there was a resurgence in the idea of nuclear terrorism, but of course, this is this this nuclear terrorism has always been with us. It was going back to um, you know communist subversives, um, you know, bringing in bombs into American harbors, or it was um, megalomaniac scientists, you know, the James Bond adversaries. Um, so, you know, you look at and this theme and cultural expression over decades, you can see these peaks and troughs and how they align at particular times, what becomes popular, what becomes less popular. And as with The Hunt for um, Red October, there were about four or five films made around that era that all were dealing with nuclear submarines that were either um, involved in accidents or potentially with rogue crews. And so somehow the stars just align. And it's a bit like Armageddon and Deep Impact and, you know, you, you get these little waves of films that deal with similar issues that just um, happen to come out of Hollywood or elsewhere, uh, reflecting fears. But given that these scenarios generally take, you know, a couple of years of development and then maybe a year of production and release, it's coincidental that they come out at the same time. But there's the germination for these ideas have probably preceded them by about maybe four or five years, depending on the development process. Mick, I have, you know, so many other questions I could ask you, and, and I'm, we're so grateful that you're, uh, well, that we're keeping you company. Uh, frankly, you should be thanking <laughs> us. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm totally kidding. Um, I'm just going to ask you one last question, and then I'd love to uh, turn the floor over to everyone, uh, Elson Scass, uh, Stephen, James, Mark, Anthony, Scott. Uh, I see Maria has joined us from uh, Mexico City. It's uh, uh, regarding uh, the late author Philip Dick, who in 1965 uh, wrote what he considered an unofficial sequel to Dr. Strangelove. I'm sure you're familiar, perhaps. Dr. Bloodmoney? Yes, sir. The one. That's the one. Um, Any indication that you're aware that uh, Stanley had a reaction to it, or do you know if he'd read it? No. I mean, I... I didn't see on his bookshelf, but I, I was in his library in Chittickbury, which was is this beautiful, um, mm. large. Actually, it's a it's the walls are blood red. It's a bit like being inside the um, shining uh, toilet. <laughs> but not, it's not full of urinals, obviously, but it's very ornate and lovely. But the but the walls are blood red. Um, he did. He was quite a science fiction fan, so um, there are many, many um, volumes of science fiction works on on his shelves. Now, most of that library's now been donated to the Stanley Kubrick Archive in London. Mm-hmm. So, um, 
you know, a quick check on that would be to, you know, go to their website and, and look at their listings and see if it is listed. But um, Kubrick was pretty litigious when it came to protecting that elongated name of uh, Dr. Strangelove. So um, I think had, had it been turned into a film, he would have likely um, issued legal proceedings so that the name would have been changed to something else. I'll give an example. Um, I, th- I think the, the filmmaker's name was um, Ray, Ray Sackler, who made, and again, I'm going to mix up the, the title because I am jet lagged. Okay. It was something like inc- Incredible Monsters Who Became Something and Turned Up Zombies or... Look, then run for your life. Incredible is the word for the world's first monster musical. See in magnificent Eastman color, the daring, dancing, enticing, and horrifying, the incredibly strange creatures who stopped living and became mixed up zombies. Someone from Columbia got in touch with him and, you know, he was making this low budget um, kind of horror comedy movie mm-hmm. and uh, Kubrick objected to the to the title being used. And But ultimately there was a compromise because um, it was it was understood that this wasn't really going to threaten the commercial um, interests of Doctor Strangelove. Right. So so whether or not he sent um, the pu- the publisher of, of Dick's novel the kind of cease and desist, I don't know. But um, that might have been an example had it been turned into a film or had options been given uh, to turn it into a film. There might have been some intervention to try and prevent that long elongated similar. Um, title being used, but pure pure speculation on my part. No, 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 uh, hardly speculation at all. You you uh, you got to be there, my man. And uh, I just have to know, man. Like, how did you how did you feel being invited? What was it like? I mean, as Kubrick enthusiasts for life, I'm sure we're all dying to know, like, what it felt like to be able to walk into that room to 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 touch those boxes to start sifting through to 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 smell the air frankly yeah yeah look i mean it it was magic and i mean um, christiana and katharina and jan they were so gracious and you know we we had lunch every day together and you know i think they had this ethos um the way it was explained to me they had a very large kitchen with, um, you know, floor-to-ceiling floor to windows overlooking mm-hmm. the gardens. Mm-hmm. And anyone who was working at the estate, you know, in any way, shape or form, there would be down tools at one o'clock and they would all get together and have this communal lunch. And, and while I was there, um, Christiana was arranging, uh, I, think, I think it was monthly, or it might have been weekly, monthly um, painting lessons for um, people from the local community. So they'd, they'd kind of come along and um, undertake some free art classes and then they'd all hoe into this big buffet lunch. And it was great to see, you know, again, it, it just totally, you know, pricked, pricked the balloon of this idea that, you know, Kubrick was, you know, um, a misanthrope. He right. um, was a recluse. Um, I mean, Jan brought the director of the Decalogue along and, um, you know, so people, he, he would always say, the, the world came to Stanley. Stanley wasn't shy of the world. Um, but also part of that generosity was sitting at the two large tables with all of these boxes of materials that probably no one had actually opened for since 1965. Um, it really was uh, literally, it took my breath away at one point. I just thought, oh, my God, you know. And 
I love doing archival work. I think it's one of the great joys of being a film historian, mm. both to sit in front of a steam back and have that celluloid, you know, run yes. through. Yeah. But also just to go through those papers and it's the pleasure of discovery, but it's really rediscovery because, of course, all I'm doing is just shining a light on materials that are already there. And, you know, my incredibly meagre contribution to understanding uh, strange love just pales infinitely into insignificance compared to the you know the mastery of Kubrick's research and his ability to kind of contain all this information and somehow make a lasting contribution to understanding something about this nuclear age that we're all still living in and do it in a way that um, had great humor great uh, great understanding and also uh, stays with us today I want to go to uh uh, you know, a, a shift, if I may, um, and it's it's uh, in regards to uh, Columbia Pictures, of course, and uh, who distributed the film. The publicist uh, uh, Sid Gaines, who'd worked on the marketing campaign, mm-hmm. he, uh, from what I understand, he'd arranged for Slim Pickens to go on the Tonight Show in uh, January of '64. Um, because uh, Stanley and the, the, the film stars uh, Peter Sellers, George Scott, uh, they were, you know, publicity shy, to put it one way. Um, do you know if that interview has ever uh, been shown since original broadcast? Is it lost now? No, I did, I did try and find it in the UCLA archive because they had um, they'd, they'd kept a number of, uh, I guess, their, their kinnies of um, those old TV shows, but I, but I couldn't find it. But it wasn't just um, Slim Pickens. Uh, Tracy Reed, um, Stilling Hayden uh, also were involved in, in doing similar type of um, television interviews. I don't know whether George Scott actually did. Sellers, of course, at that point was just all over the shop. He was working on multiple films. He'd, he'd had heart attacks. He was going through divorces. Um, so it was a bit of a big ask. I know that Kubrick was also a bit uninterested really in turning up to the BAFTAs or to the Academy Awards, so there's correspondence in the archives where he was asking um, Sellers if he would stand in for him, um, you know, if, if there was an award to be accepted. Um, so, and again, I don't think this was necessarily shyness on Kubrick's part. I think he just felt that other people were better at doing this. That's why he really didn't like giving interviews, um, partly because he didn't necessarily want to provide an authorial stamp on mm. something that he, he hoped would be open to interpretation. Mm. But also because, uh, you know, Katharina said this to me, he, he just felt really lame and inadequate, which is which is stunning <laughs> when you read how incredibly articulate and intelligent he is. It's amazing. <laughs> I, I mean, you, you, you read... You read, for instance, the uh, 1968 Playboy uh, interview, one of the few at-length pieces we have, and and to read it on the page, it's as that you know he composed his speech in conversation with fully comprehensive, grammatically correct sentences, in, incredible uh, level, you know, strands of thought, and yet totally cohesive. The ultimate gear shifter, I like to call them, the, you know, the, the highly compartmentalized brain and his ability to translate. I always found that, you know, paradoxical that, you know, he was 
you know, either, you know, camera shy or just felt that he wouldn't make an interesting guest on a chat show. We're all like, you'd be the most fascinating guest of all time. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, Mick, on, on that note, um, I'm just going to thank you again. You've given me an hour to answer questions. I'd really love to, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, to turn the floor over to uh, everyone else if uh, you're willing to hang with us, man. Sure, sure. Cool. Okay, uh, gentlemen, if you wouldn't mind unmuting yourselves and uh, every, anyone with us? The, the two, Ian, what? Hello. We have Ian. Hi. Um, I don't know whether this was raised before. Unfortunately, I only came in on the call about half an hour ago. But we just finished reading the book and I loved it. Really, really enjoyed it. And it sort of was so informative on so many different levels, not just the film, but the background to the nuclear strategy and. Uh, nuclear philosophy at the time so it's just a thank you for that it was a great read um th there's one little uh, bit that you you mentioned in it which was the which I, I've, I've seen numbers the numerous things on, on on the internet about which was the fbi or so, somebody getting involved and in seeing the uh, inside of the b-52 layout and um Wonder, you know, and Kubrick getting worried about the FBI getting involved. Some of the things I've seen suggest that there was a bit of an investigation. Yeah, and, and good to hear your voice, Ian. I hope, you, hope you're doing well. I am, I am going to write a piece on this um, because I, as I was researching the book, I went through an FIO request. Actually, Tony Fruin, uh, Kubrick's longtime assistant, suggested that um, Stanley had always uh, wondered um, whether or not he just assumed he would have had an FBI file, because um, I'd asked this question: Did he was he under investigation? You know, there are those re reminiscences by Ken Adam that he thought that maybe he was under investigation, or at least he relays the story that um, he said you'd better be able to have um, evidence that these were open source materials that you base the production design of the B-52 for, in case we come under investigation. So. There's been a little bit of conflation around the idea that um, does it actually mean they were under investigation? And um, as it turns out, the FOI requests I've done, um, I've also put put them in not just with the FBI but with the CIA. Um, CIA haven't got back to me. And the reason I went to the CIA was because as a foreign national working in uh, the UK, the FBI wouldn't be sending agents out to do investigations. It would either be CIA or Defence Intelligence Agency or perhaps the Air Force Intelligence Bureau. So, as it turned out, um, there's very little uh, material through those FOI requests. What did turn up was um, Kubrick being referenced and the film being referenced uh, by former Chief of Navy uh, Admiral Arlie Burke, who, in response to a couple of other films, um, such as Seven Days in May, around that time, uh, mentions Kubrick's film, along with others, as being part of a perhaps anti-military or anti-kind of Pentagon uh, wave of Hollywood film productions. But there's a, there's a very telling note um, in strange FBI speak where it says, um, there are no bureau files on Kubrick so he was basically a clean skin, which is uh, came as a bit of a surprise. Now, there were quite a lot of files that related to Kubrick that were found, but um, those files actually were investigations and recordings of someone that had worked on a Kubrick film. 
who was regarded as a kind of communist sympathiser. So, you know, Kubrick's name appeared in, you know, phone addresses and dress books and things like that. So in no way was he implicated. He just happened to be picked up um, in the sweep of documents. So I think it's pretty fair to say, unless the FBI um, have deliberately and deceitfully not found those materials, that there was no FBI investigation. Okay. Now, I, 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 can, I can also um, pretty categorically say that um, Peter George, um, as a result of him writing uh, the book, had a visit, according to his daughter, had a visit to his home by a couple of, um, sorry, no, to the to the RAF base he was he was stationed at. Um, this is before the film was made, sixty uh, one I think it was. Um, to two intelligence agents. Now she said they were CIA, but I think mate, they they were probably Air Force intelligence. Um, they came and interrogated him. Um, for about two hours, uh, basically saying, where did you get this information about where all these nuclear facilities in the Soviet Union were? <laughs> and he said, look, I just opened up a map and I kind of looked at where would be the most uh, remote yet industrial base, you know, and I basically put two and two together and I suggested that. So eventually they, they were satisfied that there was nothing... Um, around a security issue or he, he divulged secret information. And the anecdote that his daughter says that on the way out they said, oh, by the way, the president has read your book and he liked it very much. <laughs> now, in fact, JFK was a voracious reader and he loved reading uh, nuclear thrillers. So, so I haven't done the, the follow-up on this, but probably in the presidential library will be seven days to noon, uh, not seven days to noon, um, um, two hours to doom or Red Alert, whichever version he, he had. So that's that's my take on, you know, the security apparatus getting involved in the film or, or the book. Wonderful. Thank you, Ian. Um, James, are you there, sir? I th my, The question I have may have been completely covered in your book, which I read, but I, I just don't recall. But I'm really curious about that strange um, distributor trailer that Kubrick narrates. It's really mm. what, 10 minutes long. Did that have anything to do with the confusion over, you know, Failsafe and Strange Love came out around the same time from the same um, studio? And Well, know, in actual, in was, actual fact, was, James, there was an embargo. One of the um, terms of the settlement that Kubrick got was that uh, there was a six month embargo placed on failsafe it couldn't be released until uh, strange love had had right. both a national and, it, and kubrick tried to get an international embargo as well but certainly right. its domestic release was pushed back to i think something like october um where strange love had come out which is which is a lot longer than um six months mm -hmm. strange love got its uh, initial mainstream release in late january 64 mm -hmm. um but the other thing on that uh exhibitors showreel that I mean, I, I do mention it mostly in, in some footnotes, so that's probably why you can't recall it, because I didn't spend much time on it, other than to note that if you look very closely at it, and it was so nice to see uh, the Criterion Collection, you know, getting the rights to it and doing a nice, clean, digital um, remastering of it, because I'd just been relying on pretty crappy uh, YouTube videos, which mm -hmm. I think have subsequently been taken down. But anyway, um, so one is to hear Kubrick's voice, and... 
um, also the terminology, the way he encapsulates for these exhibitors. I'm not saying he was dumbing down the discourse, but he made it clearly simple and pretty straightforward what the theme of the film was, what the motivations of those characters were in the clips that he showed. But also he used outtakes. So that entire sequence, or virtually the entire uh, sequence, I think it runs about 16 about, minutes. It's about 16 minutes, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, that's, com- that's composed of um, outtakes. So you also see scenes and shots that aren't in the film. And I make reference to that. For example, there's a, a scene where Mandrake goes to the bar and he, and he gets the drinks that, you know, Ripper talks about, you know, drain water and alcohol and get get whatever you want. So you actually see um, Mandrake at, um, at Ripper's office bar. Um, you know, there are a couple of other shots and bits of dialogue um, um, inside the B-52 that that aren't in the film. So it's fascinating also for that reason. It's worth looking at it to um, give you a sense of, um, I think there are a couple of long master shots that um, that he used in that showreel, mm-hmm. but mostly mostly for how he was presenting it to a pretty straightforward, you know, exhibitor audience to try and encapsulate it in, in that brief period. And he's very apologetic that um, he's using master dialogue scenes and he reminds the... The, the viewer that, you know, of course there'll be any number of cutaways inserted, but you're watching the master takes of um, certain dialogue scenes. Please remember as you watch this that the material is uncut and that there are many, many angles of the scene on all the characters. The President of the United States, Peter Seller's second role, talks to the Soviet Premier Kisov. Next to him is the Russian Ambassador. Again, please remember this is just one master dialogue take. Hello, Dimitri. It's me again, Merkin. So was there any... I'm trying to get a better hold on why he did it. Was he coerced by the studio? What did it have something to I, do with I could, the confusion yeah. for drama versus comedy? Yeah, good, 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 good question. I didn't see anything in any of the documents that um, suggested why he did that himself. Um, my guess would be that, um, you know... It was it was done very early on. I mean, long before um, the final film was cut. So my guess is somewhere between May and um, probably before the the um, scheduled premiere on twenty second of November sixty three. Um, so it would have been like a work in progress. Um, and the rationale for it, I think, you probably on the money. Maybe he thought, look, this is going to be such an outrageous thing. Um, it'd be good to get some word of mouth out there uh, t- to provide literally his spin on it, his take on it using his own voice and his own words so that um, in case there's any pushback from the military or from, you know, critics, at least um, he would have had the exhibitors in the bag. Cool. All right. Thank you. That's that, that's great. I think, uh, like James, uh, most of us were, you know, so happy to see the uh, – and, and here, the uh, exhibitors trailer, when it came out, when I heard the announcement that Criterion was releasing it, you know, went to the internet and saw it was going to have this, I had never heard of this before. And then when I got it, and you get to hear him speak in such a relaxed conversation, it's like nothing that would be released uh, as promotional material these days. Uh, you hear Stanley, you know, coughing and, and, you know, just kind of talking his way through it. And it's just, it's, it's remarkable. Um, James, if you're uh, still there, 
please feel free to ask more questions as long as Mick's hanging with us. Looks like we should be able to have uh, time to get everybody's questions in. I'm good. James is good. Well, you're always good, my man. There's no doubting that. What would be awesome is uh, to uh, turn over the floor to Mark because Mark Lentz is uh, the man. He is a wonderful guy. And uh, like all of us, avid uh, enthusiast of, of Kubrick in general, specifically Strange Love. And I know that he is probably the most familiar with uh, your book amongst us. He did a great deal of uh, preparation and research. He's helped me and uh, all of us in SCAS in so many ways. Um, he initiated this call. I would love at this time, Mark, to turn it over to you. Uh, if you're there, my man, chime on in and speak with the guest of honor. Oh, thanks so much, Jason. Both of my questions regard tragedies uh, for Kubrick fans. First one is you've spent a lot of time at the archives and you do a great job of reconstructing the outtakes that were left out of uh, Dr. Strangelove. Do any outtakes of any Kubrick films still exist anywhere and will we ever get to see them, do you think? Mm. Uh, I would think as long as Jan is alive... And I would assume, um, I'm not sure whether, I don't think Vivian's very active um, in the estate, although she is a member of that estate. But it's, you know, as far as I understand, there, there are many lawyers and um, uh, people from um, outside of the family that are, in, that are involved in, the, in that estate. So if there are outtakes, although I've been told Kubrick, destroyed everything but he may not have um it will really be up to the discretion of the family in concert with the with the uh with the estate as to whether or not any of that material would ever be uh revealed let alone exposed the second point is i think um an example would be the pie fight sequence actually exists at the bfi library now, I tentatively asked Jan about getting access to that way back when, I think maybe in April 2005, and, and that was a categorical no. And he quite rightly said, look, you know, this was Stanley's wish, I'm Stanley's executor, and that's where it sits. If he'd wanted it in the film, it would have been in the film if he wanted people to see it. He actually it wasn't accidental, but um, there was an arrangement around a kind of... Uh, I think during that early 60s period around cultural preservation of film production, my understanding is that is why that print uh, exists with the pie fight. It was almost like a mandatory deposit for cultural preservation. That's mm. my understanding. So uh, whether or not there's outtakes, for example, um, from Eyes Wide Shut, given that he, he passed away before Final Cut, um, mm -hmm. It's probably fair to assume that if there is any if there is any residual uh, material, it it would be that. But I don't know for sure, and we'll just have to wait and see. And as a follow up, Mick, do you have an opinion about the argument that the artist should be able to make these decisions, or would it be a benefit 
to scholars ultimately to be able to see these outtakes. Yeah, I think it'll be of great benefit. Um, but also, you know, Stanley, somewhere along the line, I, uh, this isn't in the um, Strangelove material, but he certainly made it clear at some point that he didn't really like the idea of people looking at all of his draft scripts simply because, you know, these are unformulated, unfinished things. But um, the fact that he kept all of this material would suggest that he wasn't keen to throw it out, probably because not only of the intellectual and emotional investment that he spent, you know, decades working on these research projects that would become films and others that didn't become films, but that um, he may in future find some utility, some purpose for uh, this material. Uh, that's exactly why when he heard that um, all of that Arctic footage um, wasn't going to be preserved or there was some threat uh, that it may not be preserved by the studio, he made damn sure that it was because he realised that, you know, he had captured some of the most um, precious aerial photography of Greenland, Iceland, you know, northern Canada um, that no one else had done. So this, this had become almost um, geological, geographical gold. Um, so there's a lot of wisdom in him retaining this material. But what I said to Jan um, at some point was, it's a, it's a pity, you know, I mean, imagine if um, Franz Kafka's wishes had have been um, fulfilled <laughs> by his, his estate, that all of those all those manuscripts would have been destroyed. Great yes. point. So, yes. so, you know, I, I, on the one hand, I understand and respect the rights of the people controlling that, but um, my desire is that that would be made accessible if there were um, outtakes to be seen. Okay, my go ahead. Second question is a little more complicated. Uh, Kubrick ultimately chose to tell his movie about nuclear holocaust as a comedy. He was to have made one other film about a holocaust, Aryan Papers, but at the last minute decided to abandon the project. Tony Fruin says it was because of Schindler's List being released just as they were starting production, and Kubrick worried that it would kill the box office for his film. Christiane Kubrick says Stanley became deeply depressed during his research, researching of the Holocaust Project, and maybe that was the real reason he gave it up. Mick, as someone who has researched such topics extensively, do you also become deeply depressed about them at times? Would it have been impossible for Kubrick to make a film about such a topic while maintaining the sense of detachment that is a hallmark of his films? Yeah, that's a great, great question, Mark. I think um, my perspective on that would be that he did go through a similar um, process of, of angst, disbelief. Um, and, of course, you know, the natural human reaction, and this is something that, you know, you know Jimmy Harris has mentioned, he himself, Kubrick, has written about, and um, Christiana related to me, is that, you know, he would break up. You would naturally turn to gallows humour. When, you, when you're sitting across from Herman Kahn and he's speaking at a thousand miles a, a minute, um, rattling off megadeth numbers, talking about humans, you know, turned into numbers, this is precisely the genocidal mentality that informed, you know, the Third Reich's extermination programs. And, you know, Stanley was deeply conscious of the, the resonance with that. And, in fact, there were a couple of note cards in his uh, Strange Love material 
where he talks about, you know, lemmings jumping off a cliff and, you know, with, this is just like the Jews. And he said to um, Christiana when um, they were debating whether they would come to Australia or not, he said, you know, we're just like the Jews in Berlin, you know, in denial, you know, the, the threats all around us, but, you know, we're not acting, we're, we're kind of paralysed by, by it. So already during the, the Strangelove era, he was contemplating um, these, these issues. And it did take its toll. I remember Christiana saying that he, he looked at all of these uh, newsreel footages of Hiroshima and Nagasaki and, you know, the, the grotesquely damaged people from um, both radiation and, and burns and um, blast. And it was ghastly work. Um, but, you know, he, he needed to be comprehensive and see everything and read everything. So, yes, I'm sure it would have taken a, a huge emotional toll. Um, and I also want to point out that I think Christiana really needs some recognition here as, as his pretty much his life partner. I mean, they were mm. co-collaborators um, mm-hmm. intellectually, emotionally, artistically. Um, so... Stanley was really lucky to have such a supportive wife and such an intellectual um, and empathic person as Christiana so that, you know, um, at least he had somewhere to vent, he had somewhere to, you know, um, express uh, his concerns and his fears and um, his aspirations with her. So I think you're right. Um, The pragmatic side is, of course, like, um, Napoleon and the, the release of Waterloo and like Platoon and the release of Full Metal Jacket and potentially uh, Aaron Papers was nixed because of that. But they were, they were clearly greatly relieved that um, he, he, you know, not continue with that. But that doesn't mean that he wouldn't have possibly in the future had he lived. Mm. I agree that the family has done an incredible job of promoting Stanley's legacy in so many ways. Uh, it would have been a great thing for the Australian film industry had Stanley followed up and moved to Australia. But Probably I'll wouldn't know. have been a good thing for the for the Kubricks. <laughs> I think Australia in, in circa 1961, 62, particularly if he came to Perth, would have been such a backwater. Mm. They would have been horrified. Something tells me he would have adapted. He, no he, doubt. He does seem, a, I mean, a very assimilable, uh, you know, even beyond most people's uh, abilities. Um, those are, also, those he, he may well have just come and, you know, done some scouting and waited waited for the Berlin crisis to dissipate yeah. or the Cuban crisis to dissipate. Or he may have decided, look, I'm going to make a film about Ned Kelly um, in Australia or, you know, use the resources a bit like the um, the um, tax incentives that the British government gave to foreign productions. Um, he was a good friend of Greg Peck and he just made On the Beach. So mm-hmm. they knew about the, they knew mm-hmm. about the kind of tax system and um, what the production facilities were like in Australia, what the the talent and the, of the crew were. So he may well have come and, you know, shot a movie and then gone back to the UK or gone back to the States. Who knows? Well, it's also likely he might have just said, this is the most delicious lobster I've ever had anywhere on the <laughs> earth. I'm never leaving this place again. <laughs> or or he, he may have made, made Jaws in 1963. <laughs> oh, my goodness. And what a different uh, world we'd, we'd be living in uh, had he beat Spielberg to that punch. 
<laughs> great stuff. Um, and great stuff, uh, Mark. I, I do see we have Anthony joining us. He is on holiday. Hello. Hello. There he is. Hello. Hi. Hi. <laughs> uh, firstly, Mick, thank you so much for your time. I can't tell you how enjoyable it is to, to, to listen to this. Oh, um, thanks for taking just a break remind, from your holiday. <laughs> not at all. It, it reminds me why I want to spend the rest of my life interested in, in the work and, and films of, of Kubrick. Just a, a little question for you. Um, you, you, you've, you've done your own Kubrickian effort, really, with the book. It's, it's, it's 20 years in, in the making, it sounds like. Well, I was pretty peripatetic. I mean, I was all over the shop during those, you know, probably 17 years. Um, the most intensive focus was in the last 18 months. But one of the great benefits of having the project take a, a long time to gestate was the spate of declassified documents that came out during those, you know, 15, 17 years. So I make a nice little dedication to the National Security Archive um, in the introduction because they have just been so diligent at uh, declassifying enormous amounts of mostly American uh, nuclear policy, nuclear strategy, uh, nuclear secrecy, including, of course, the smoking gun around the strange life scenario when Eisenhower um, issued presidential pre-delegation for the expenditure of atomic weapons. So lower echelon commanders, as uh, Peter George and then Kubrick uh, developed in their film, um, we were absolutely given the capacity to, without presidential authority, because it was pre-delegated under certain conditions, launch a nuclear attack against Russia. So while the Pentagon poo-pooed this through declassification, you know, in, in recent years, we can absolutely show how valid and cogent that scenario is and it still remains today presumably mm. fantastic um another little question um you, you interviewed some of peter george's family how, how were they i mean it, it's it must be a combination of, of sadness and pride uh, over the story of their father but uh, any any interesting anecdotes from from meeting with them yeah look sadly um just just before um, well, no, just after the book came out, uh, David, Peter's son and executor, died. And I'd spent a couple of um, visits when I was going to London, um, meeting up with David and going through his dad's archive and, and listening to his, his reminiscence. So David was also on a bit of a, a journey to try and rediscover um, as much as he could about his dad because his dad took his, took his own life, uh, shot himself. Um, when David was about, um, I think he was a six-year-old. So he had this huge um, loss and emptiness in his life. And in his later years, when I met him, um, he'd started to look at his dad's catalogue of works and reread them and try and get a sense as to how he was received, you know, what people thought of him. So, you know, as with Niall Southern, they were both very generous and, of course, Katharina, who introduced me to the family, um, all of the major uh, writing uh, contributors through their children gave me access to, you know, the various archives. But also his daughter, this is um, Peter George's daughter, uh, Sarah, uh, who was a lot older, 
Um, she was fantastic because one of the things that people like Baxter and others just endlessly repeat was this uh, ridiculous notion that uh, Peter George was a member of CND, the Campaign for Nuclear Disarmament. Now, you know, he was still an active uh, serviceman when he was writing a lot of these works and, um, you know, the idea that he would be a member of CND was kind of anathema to him, according to his daughter. It was actually she who was a member of CND as a, as a kind of late teenager. Um, so they had very robust debates about nuclear policy, nuclear strategy, the need for disarmament. And while um, Peter George was clearly interested in removing nuclear weapons, he wasn't a unilateralist because he thought if um, Britain went along a unilateral road, that would make it vulnerable um, to attack um, by the Soviet Union and, and, and others through mm. conventional and, and, and nuclear means. So, yeah, I mean, speaking with Sarah, she also provided those anecdotes about her father being investigated by um, either, either CIA, but I actually think it was probably um, the Air Force Intelligence uh, Bureau. Um, and, and the anecdote that JFK had read his book and wanted to tell the spooks to pass on, he liked it. So, yeah, you never, you, you, you never know what you're going to discover when you, um, when you speak with people, particularly over a couple of repeat visits when, when um, they get to know you and they, they trust you. So I've been very fortunate that um, people have opened up to me um, and embraced the idea of doing this as a, as a kind of deeply researched historical um, work rather than what they might perceive as yet another um, either fan-based or primarily aesthetic um, consideration of the film, all of which I think are important, of course, but I wanted to do something different. Wonderful. Mm. Thank you. Th thanks so much for uh, taking break. We all know you're on holiday. Um, please feel free. This is a holiday uh, from my holiday. Yeah. <laughs> you're a dad. That's how it works. <laughs> You knew the deal when you signed uh, the contract, I'm afraid. Uh, uh, apparently. I have uh, an open floor. Um, we've yet to get to uh, the caretaker himself, Mr. Stephen Rigg, founder of SCAS, and General Bon Vivant, professional gentleman of leisure, and all-around wonderful human being. We all know him. We all love him. Uh, are you there, Stephen? Hey, Stephen. Hi, Mick. Uh, I've just got one quick final question. I, w I wonder if you wouldn't mind recalling the story about Stanley's um, kind of idea to move to Perth. Yeah, so um, the, the, the start of the book really, you know, goes through the, the context that, you know, Kubrick grew up into um, his early professional life with Look magazine. Sorry, someone's bringing a drinks trolley past us as I speak. Um, uh, flag them, without, flag them down. With, without a drink for me, unfortunately. But <laughs> that's um, not right. So, <laughs> so um, what happened was, um, of course, you know, growing up in New York, um, there were just endless stories, uh, particularly pictorial feature articles about the atomic age and what a nuclear war would mean for for the US. And this is while America had a monopoly on the weapons. This is before 1949. Um, and, you know, I, I detail a range of other kind of cultural influences around that period. But very early on, he, he started thinking about, and he, he wasn't alone in this, um, 
where would be a safe haven. So there was a dramatic move from atomic weapons to thermonuclear weapons. These things were a thousand times more powerful than the bombs at Hiroshima and Nagasaki. So it certainly became clear that not only would these things totally annihilate in entire cities, like basically smear, smear a city was the term that um, SAC would use, but the resulting mm. fallout, by the mid-1950s, it was understood that the resulting fallout would spread over thousands and thousands of square kilometres. So you may avoid uh, the thermonuclear blast heat, but you wouldn't avoid radiation. So, you know, there was a lot of stuff going on at the time, apart from the, the poisoning of the atmosphere through these um, atmospheric tests, was where could you possibly be where prevailing winds or even um, uh, trans-hemispheric transference of um, uh, radionuclides high up into the troposphere and stratosphere um, would dissipate so that you wouldn't actually be subjected to fallout. So he, he, you know, did his homework. He spoke with strategists. He looked on the map and worked out that the west coast of Australia would be, uh, first of all, least likely to be attacked and, secondly, um, least likely to be subject to any fallout. Wow. So between August 61 and August 62, he um, started... Uh, making moves around um, sending money into Australian bank accounts. He met with the embassy. He got visas for his uh, wife and kids and himself. Um, he was telling he was telling um, the embassy at the time that he was looking at you know doing a, a a recce, really kind of coming to consider making a production in Australia, and you know combining that with a family holiday. Although other documents show that. You know, he was looking at permanent residency, potentially, and what that would mean because he didn't actually own his own house in America. He'd lived in various apartments. So this is before, um, in the interim period between um, Lolita and, and Dr. Strangelove, as he was developing this idea for a, a film on the thermonuclear problem. So potentially he was going to make uh, Dr. Strangelove on the East Coast in New York. And then... Um, for various reasons, you know, um, after Lolita, he thought, you know, he'd, he'd stay in the UK because of the ED plan and, um, you know, the, the technicians he'd work with. But he'd also said at one point to Tony Harvey that, and I'm not sure whether this was um, around the time of editing Lolita, which was, again, during the Berlin crisis before uh, the Cuban crisis, mm. um, but... He, he, he actually thought, and I think erroneously, that it was um, during the Cuban Missile Crisis, but by, this, by that stage, um, you know, he hadn't even started um, uh, finalising the, the work on the film for Dr. Strange Life. So I think it was during the Berlin Crisis. Kubrick had said to him, do you reckon you could work on a movieola on a ship to Australia? So clearly wow. these ideas were in his, were in his head and mm. he was going to continue to work. So, you know, I speculate. Would he, have, would he have tried to make um, Dr. Strangelove down under? <laughs> I don't know. I think he probably would have looked for an Indigenous story. But, he, but he, I, I quote him, I think it's around about the early 60s, where he says, look, you can really make a film anywhere, apart from natural geographical features, um, as long as you've got a, a good infrastructure, studio and talented crew, mm. cast, a, cast a transportable, you can make a movie on any topic anywhere. So mm. that was his mindset. Yeah. And he and he went on to do that time and time again, didn't he? Exactly right. Yeah. That's right. Mm. So that's the other great myth, I think, uh, where people say, "Oh, 
you know, he was he was holed up in Chittickbury or, you know, Abbots Mead or, you know, wherever, um, squirreled away, you know, hiding from the world, working on his films. He, he was going to go to Europe to make um, Napoleon. He went to Europe to make Barry Lyndon. Well, he certainly went to um, Ireland. Um, so he's pragmatic. He would have gone to places. He just would have gone by boat. Hmm. Great. Uh, thanks for that, for giving us the old uh, Australian story. Uh, right, I'll, I'll hand you back over to Jason. Thanks, Indeed, Mick. no. Thanks, Mick. Cheers. Great stuff. Wow, thanks, Mick. Where can uh, we and uh, our listeners, where can everyone get a copy of uh, Reconstructing Strange Love? That's my first question. And my last, on behalf of the group, was uh, uh, your next project, sir. What can we uh, look forward to? Okay, well, I'll start with the second one first. Please. Um, uh, James and a couple of other people will know, um, well, actually, you should all know, as SCAS members, um, there was a call for papers around... um, an anthology project and a special issue uh, for the Film History Journal, Screening the Past, called Post Kubrick. Mm-hmm. Um, that's now completed, and they're just doing the final HTML because it's an online open access journal. That should be out and available uh, for people. There's eight essays, um, mostly from a conference that um, was run in Leicester uh, last year on Stanley Kubrick. And it's the theme of it is really looking at Kubrick's influence, basically, um, post-Kubrick. So after his death, how um, Kubrick's influence has kind of generated different kind of manifestations in film and culture. So that's coming out shortly. Uh, there'll be a companion anthology uh, with some contributions from SCAS members, um, an anthology called uh, Stanley Kubrick, A Legacy, um, and that should um, oh, wow. be in the pipeline in coming months. Um, the other work, I'm, I'm still going to get back to that on the beach book and uh, a, a book on the Mad Max quartet. Oh, my so, good. Oh, wow. So well, I know I... They're the irons in the fire. <laughs> and um, so I've got a bit of an agenda to keep me going, keep me busy for a little while. And the book is available. You can get it through Amazon. Um, of course, of I, course. I, th- I think the Kindle's pretty cheap. Um, the Kindle version, I think, is like 15 bucks or something. I yeah, but the paper, paper Mark's, Mark's a big fan of the uh, the Kindle version. He says it's it's just very well laid out. He's, he's uh, uh, recommending it. Um, it looks right. great on the iPad, yeah. They did a great oh, good. job. Good. Um, of course, I, I'm. Whenever I look at the book or whatever, I, I see the half a dozen typos that I, that I miss. So that's that's always an annoyance <laughs> for, for any author. Okay, well, this is the end of the show. I'd like to say thank you to our special guest, Mick Broderick, who was actually in the lounge of Santiago Airport in Chile when we spoke to him. We recorded the interview on August 6, 2017, which coincidentally was Hiroshima Day. I'd like to also thank our host, Jason Furlong, who did a great job in the chat department. I'd also like to thank long-time SCAS admin and all-around Kubrick aficionado, James Marinaccio, for setting the interview up, and to Mark Lentz for providing research for this episode. 
I'd also like to thank SCAS members Ian Roscoe and Anthony Adler, as well as James and Mark, for joining us on the call and adding some great questions for Mick. If you're looking to find out more about Mick's book, Reconstructing Strange Love, then go and get a copy from the usual outlets. If you want to take a look at the film Dr. Strangelove, then I would recommend the latest release of the film by Criterion, which includes new interviews with Peter George's son David, archivist Richard Daniels, camera operator Kelvin Park, as well as Mick Broderick, who, who you've just heard, and a bunch of other good stuff. If you're on Facebook, why not join our online community at the Stanley Kubrick Appreciation Society? We'll be back soon with a fantastic interview with Moonwatcher himself, Dan Richter. Tatty bye. It's Kubrick's universe. We just live in it. We have taken very thorough precautions in this podcast against broadcasting anything which might only be attributed to human error.